So it's been an exciting, exciting week around here. Uh, lots going on. I think it was last week that we got to feed the teachers at the school, uh, which is a really awesome experience. Um, but this week, downtown had a lot going on. Uh, we got to be a part of it. And if you were not at third Thursday, Thursday night, you missed out. Um, downtown was packed. Uh, had a really good time. And we had a few of our guys uh, just set up jamming on the sidewalk. And we had our PA system going through the streets. And they were able to uh, just really just play music throughout the evening. Nothing specific. But when they did, it just filled the street full of music. So every time I turned that corner or that corner, you just heard them fill in the street. Uh, we had people coming just to sit uh, and enjoy what they were doing. We had our, we bought one of those big tall Jenga things. Uh, so we had giant Jenga and Connect Four on the sidewalk and people just coming and hanging out. Um, so one of our goals was to add value to this street for the street festivals. And uh, I think we were a huge success in doing that. Uh, this street was, uh, I believe, uh, far better because we were a part of it. Um, so we are doing that to add value to the boutiques, to the businesses, to the vendors that are a part of here, letting them know that we are for them. Uh, whether or not they ever become a part of us, we're going to serve them like they are, right? We're going to treat them like their family, serve them like their family, whether or not they ever become part of our family. Um, and very grateful for those that uh, were a part of that. And also, Mike Henry went above and beyond and went on a rat hunt because we had rodent issues this week. Mike knocked it out for us when we walked it in. When we walked in, it knocked us out, and then Mike was able to track them down and rid our facility of that. So y'all should thank Mike next time. He's not with us this morning. Thank him for that. Um, also really cool, uh, once a month I go to a meeting that with business owners downtown. Uh, it's the group that puts on Third Thursday. So once a month we go and we meet and discuss what's going on downtown and collaborate together. Um, they usually host it at the oil shop on Market Street. Well, we have outgrown our ability to meet in the oil shop. And they were discussing at the end of the meeting, hey, we need to call Regions and see if we can use their conference room because we're too big of a group for our shop. And I said, we'll host, and we'll feed you lunch. So Wednesday, September 11th, we are going to host that meeting in our space, and we're going to feed them lunch as part of it. Lunch is never a part of this, so we're going above and beyond to show hospitality and share a meal with the owners of the businesses down here. So if you have any flexibility on your Wednesday schedules, September 11th, that Wednesday, it would be wonderful to have a handful of us hosting that meal, serving these business owners down here, okay? Probably about 12 o'clock. So I know some of you don't have flexibility, but some of you do. And if you do, I'm asking you to use it to be a part of that, okay? Really, really exciting opportunity that we have to serve and to have probably about 30 business owners and uh, folks that are invested in our downtown, uh, city leaders, business owners, variety, will be in our space. We will be hosting them. Um, that's a huge barrier to get removed, to have people actually walk in, share a meal in here. 
And that's a huge open door for us to love them, serve them, and proclaim good news into their lives. Okay? So we want to take advantage of that. We are in a conversation right now called Foundations. And who remembers the illustration from last week? If you were with us. <laughs> Some kind of elephant, she said. You're right. It was an elephant that you picked apart and told me I did a horrible job at drawing. So I'm going to fix the tusk. The tusk goes up top. Is that right? Is that what you told me? All right. So the elephant. Okay. And the premise of this, this is an old Indian parable. It goes back to Hindu and Buddhism and things like that. It's, it's included in a lot of their texts that they use, and it's been passed down for thousands of years. And this old parable goes like this. There were six blind men who encountered an elephant. One encountered the trunk, one encountered the tusk, the ear, the leg, the side, and the tail. And each one describes the elephant according to how they encountered it. And the blind man that comes across the trunk says, oh, an elephant is like a snake. And then the next one comes across the um, the tusk, and he says, no, 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 an elephant is like a spear. And this man says, no, you're both wrong, an elephant is like a tree. No, 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 an elephant is like a fan. And then, of course, the one that comes into the side and feeling and encountering the side said, no, you're all wrong, an elephant is like a wall. And then the last blind man that comes encounter with the tail says, no, all of you are wrong, an elephant's like a rope. And some... Uh, people that have told this story throughout generations would go on to say that these men get furious at one another, begin to argue because everyone perceives that their understanding of the elephant is the most accurate. So now they're fighting and bickering back and forth. So here we have the elephant. Throughout history, men have exhausted every avenue and attempt to define and to describe the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is God. Every, throughout every generation, there's been an attempt by people everywhere and all around the world to define and to describe God. And it is like the elephant. It has created a plethora of views, a lot of passion, a number of arguments to define who God is. Um, so there were two men in a donut shop. This is not a joke. Two men walk into a donut shop. No, this is not a joke. Um, two men in a donut shop actually had a very big impact on my life and how I encounter and how I approach people in my life. Um, these two men, Paul Sr. and Paul Jr., some of you have heard about them before. But I met them in the donut shop and we encountered each other on a weekly basis because they came at the same time on the same day every week and so did I. And so we encountered and we visited and we shared and discussed our own God journeys. Eventually, I got to the point where they were open and willing to discuss that with me. Uh, and what I found was two men, father and son, who had who had, had uh, unfortunate experiences with people that left them with a desire to explain away the elephant in the room or God. They had bad experience with people, so they wanted to explain away the person of God, or the existence of God. Um, and scientist and author Stephen Hawking, anybody heard of him? Just died last year, is that right? 
died in the last couple of years, somewhat recently. Um, Stephen Hawking provided the logic that these two men now subscribe to that allowed them to explain away the existence of God. Funny, I mean, not, not funny, sad, but the sad reality was I don't think these men wanted to explain away the existence of God until people who believed in God drove them to that point. People who claim to believe and follow and love God, now they had these horrible experiences with these people, and because they had horrible experience with them, they had a horrible experience with God, and now they want to explain that away. Stephen Hawking provided that logic. And so I agreed to read the book that changed Paul Sr.'s mind. I said, Paul, I'll read the book if you will sit down and talk to me about it when I'm done. Let's have a book club when I'm done reading. Uh, the name of the book was uh, The Theory of Everything that Stephen Hawking wrote. He said, that book changed my world, changed my mind, and I believe that. I said, I'll read it, let's discuss it. So I did. So over a weekend, I sat down and I plowed through this book. Half of it I understood, it was great, the other half was way over my head. I don't understand black holes and everything else like that. Um, so, but the first half was really quite insightful. I wanna give you a couple quotes from this book. Number one, Stephen says this, why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? This is him presenting the premise of his book. This is why he wrote and did his studies. The theory of everything is his lifelong studies all compacted into this book. Um, and he says, why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? Is the unified theory so compelling that it brings about its own existence? Or does it need a creator? And if so, does he have any effect on the universe other than being responsible for his existence? And who created him? So he said, is the universe here on its own, or does it need a creator, and if so, who created him? He goes on to say this, if we find the answer to that, it will be the ultimate triumph of human reason. For then, Stephen says, for then we will know the mind of God. If we know why the universe exists, if we know why he created it, then we will know the mind of God. Okay. Now keep in mind, this is coming from a man who does not believe God exists. So when he says that, he, he's not really literally wanting to know why God created everything. He just wants to know why everything exists. Okay. Because he, doesn't, he goes into his studies with the presumption that God is not real. Um. So then he goes on, and this is in the middle of some of his studies. He, he comes to this conclusion. This was really interesting because I'm still tracking with him at this point, and things that he's saying somewhat still make sense to me before he gets over my head. He says this, If the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in a hundred thousand million million, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size. On the other hand, if the expansion rate at that one second had been larger by the same amount, the universe would have expanded so much uh, that it would be effectively empty now. So he's saying the conditions of what he believed to be the Big Bang when things started, that was what he was working with. If, it would have, if those conditions would have been 
a millionth of a millionth of a millionth different at all, the universe would have either collapsed or been void. Depends on which way it goes. And, and this is where Stephen really captured me in his book. He said, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in this way except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. So he gets to this point in his studies and in his journey of trying to figure out why the universe exists. He said, the only explanation at this point is that there is a God who created all things and he, got, he did that to the point that he wanted us to exist as well. And then the very next statement says this. In order to avoid this difficulty, they put forth a new model. At this point, he lost me in his book. I'm like, you're following science to understand the existence of the universe. You want to know the mind of God, why things are the way they are. And your scientific evaluation led you to the necessity of God as creator. But you didn't like that answer. So you continue to put forth more theories and more models. And I'm going to be honest with you, and this is what I shared with Paul Sr. in the donut store. That's where he lost me. Not because I didn't agree with him, because I didn't agree with a lot of what he said in his book. But he lost me because his thinking became so theoretical, so difficult to follow, because it was not based upon tangible things. It was based upon theory on top of theory on top of theory. And at that point, everything became so abstract that I couldn't even follow his, his progress anymore. And all that happened because he didn't like the necessity of God being creator of the universe. Let's be honest with each other right now. Every person everywhere enters this conversation with preconceived ideas. And when we consider opposing views to our own, this conversation is very difficult to have. Okay? And that's why Stephen Hawking moved on in his studies. That's my evaluation of why he moved on in his studies. When we encounter opposing views and we want to consider and discuss them, it's very difficult for the one who is engaging in a view that's different than our own. Right? It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Therefore, I believe we must define the question of God, we must define this foundational belief clearly and discuss it humbly. Okay? So when it comes to us as a church and having a foundational belief in who is God, we must do it clearly, have a clear definition of it, but we must discuss it Humbly, because if we are going to discuss it with anybody that comes with a different view, then you need to recognize that that's a difficult thing for them to do. So doing it with humility allows that discussion to take place. And I'm going to say that some of us are going to come in and I'm going to present this in a way that may be difficult for you, because I like to discuss things with open-ended concepts. I like to create question in your mind so that you can wrestle in your heart. That way, when you get done, you have a clear definition, not something that you're going to restate what your pastor said, but you're going to have understanding. 
so that you can communicate it clearly and humbly as you go on your journey. Okay? So, question for the day is, who is God? And let me go on and give another option. What is God? So I don't want to come in with too clear of a preconception in this conversation. So who or what is God? It's what we're tackling as a foundational belief this morning. We're going to start with the theories that exist for the elephant in the room. There are multiple theories that exist to answer the question, who or what is God? Theory number one, agnosticism. I think I just spelled that wrong. Anybody would know what agnosticism means? What? That's a different one. Agnosticism comes from two different words. It's um, and it means literally unknowable. That God exists. But we are without knowledge and he is not knowable. So God exists. There is a God, yet unknowable. Gnosticism is where we get the word agnostic or agnosticism. Um, So God exists, yet he's unknowable. Theory number one. Theory number two is deism. And I'm sorry for the vocabulary lesson here, but it's going to help you out tremendously as we move ahead. Deism means God exists and can be known, but only through reason and nature. So God is known by reason or nature. It's the parable of the elephant. You can know him. You can encounter him. You must go out and reason what you experience. Look at the trees, look at the birds, and you see him. He's knowable through these things. Um, he, she, or it can be, uh, has created the world and has left it to its natural law. So deism also says God left to nature. He created it and then he left it to be. He's not engaged with it. He set it in motion, and then he backed up, okay? Anybody know what polytheism means? Polytheism? Many gods. There are poly, many gods, okay? Uh, Anybody know what... Pantheism means. Pantheism. You're not allowed to talk to your husband. You have to talk to me in this moment. What are you doing? No, pantheism is the universe is God. The universe is God. That's why our um, Indian, Native American Indian ancestors worship 
the trees and the skies and the ground because you believe that the universe is God. All right, we're going to give you an easier one. More relevant in our culture. Atheism. Somebody help me out. There is no God. There is no God. And the last one for the morning is monotheism. What's mono mean other than the sickness? One. There is one God. He is creator and part or what's the word I'm looking for? He is um, uh, one God, not known by reason, but known by self-revelation. Okay, so in contrast to deism, where you go out, sit in a field, and think about God, you'll figure out who he is. Uh, monotheism says there's one God and he exists and he has made himself known through his self-revelation. Okay? So there's the theories that exist. Sorry to do that to you. Some of you got bored in that moment, but now you can tune back in. Um, think about this. Shelly has always told me that I need to write a book one day. I'm going to have to let my kids grow up and get more free time before I write a book. Um, but maybe one day I will. So when it comes to literary works or books or articles, what do you think the most important sentence in any literary work is? What would you guess? The first one. Why is the first sentence the most important in any literature? Sets the tone. Hmm? It's the hook. It draws you in. Creates interest. Introduces you to a theme or something, and you're just like, okay, I want to know more about that theme. I don't want to know more about that theme. It's, it's, your, it's your opportunity to engage your audience. And if you don't engage them quickly, what do you do? You lose them. You lose them. All right? So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the first statement in the entire Bible, God does that. Those of you that have grown up reading the Bible or hearing the Bible, you, you've got Genesis 1-1 in your memory and you probably underestimate what is happening in Genesis 1-1. But in the first 10 words of the Bible, God puts a statement out there that has rocked our world and has rocked every theory and every man who has considered the claim of Genesis 1-1, it has redirected conversations, lives, communities, everything. One of the most controversial, if not the most controversial statement in all of the Bible is the very first one. The first ten words. It's the hook. It also introduces you to the theme of the Bible. It introduces you to the purpose of the rest of what you see. Without the first one, you enter into a storyline and a narrative that you've not been introduced. So that first one opens up the narrative that the rest of the Bible follows. Okay? So in Genesis 1-1, God creates the ultimate drama. Let's look at it real quick. And we're going to spend the rest of our time considering 
the claim. If you were not with us last week, we declared last week that we believe that God has revealed and preserved uh, his revelation in the scriptures that we can find out who he is by who he has said himself to be. So if you, we are opening up this to consider who he is said to be based on the belief that we discussed last week. So if you're a week behind, go back and you'll realize why we're going to Genesis 1-1 this week. Genesis 1, verse 1, first 10 words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're going to consider two pieces of this and how they impact us. First one is, in beginning, God created. Number one is, in the beginning, God created. God is found outside of, above, figuratively, and before all natural things. Okay, when, when the first line of the Bible opens up, God, you have all creation, and then out here, we have God. He's outside of, he's over in authority, and he existed before anything else. So you set the scene for what the Bible declares to be true about who God is. He's outside of nature. He is in charge of authoritative overall creation, and he existed prior to, because in the beginning, God. And then God created. So that means he was pre-existing before anything else. That's the first claim that we find considering who God is. So based upon that, if God is creator, we should be able to look to what he has made, not to find out who he is, but maybe what he's like. Okay? We don't look and say, well, God is the earth. He is the universe. No. We look at the universe and we say, what can I come to know about who God is based upon what God has made? Okay? So we're going to look at a couple pictures right now. And I'm just going to ask you, based upon the picture you see on the TV, what can you declare to be an attribute or a characteristic about God based upon what God has made? So picture number one. How might we describe God's invisible qualities based upon these visible things? What do you think? So if it's balanced, how do you mean that? Yeah. 
So if God set that in motion, what does that declare to be true about God? If he has set the life cycle in motion, if he set the reflection in motion, if he's positioned all these things to operate in these cycles, in these sequences, and to balance one another out, then this tells us things about him. I mean, it's, who, who else could, could do those things? He's amazing. Right? If a painter painted that, what would you say about the painter? Hmm? Talented. Creative. Right? Hmm? Detail oriented. Right? Go to the next one, see. Speaking of detail-oriented. So the first picture was a big picture view. But now here we take that creation and we go to the small macro view. What do these visible things tell about his invisible attributes? Confirms what you just said about detail-oriented. And then you think about what that flower does. Goes back to the cycles that you were talking about, right? Humble? I mean, it's astounding to think of the, Tyler was talking about the reproductive part and not just of the animals, but of the flowers as well. And it's astounding to think of the processes that were set in motion. And then you think about the softness. The first picture was huge boulders, rocks, mountains. But then you think about the tender softness of the flower. And he created both of them, right? I mean, if you set me loose to create one thing or another thing, most of us are going to lean towards creating big, strong, powerful things or creating soft, tender, delicate things. Not many of us are going to have the entire vision and ability to, to, to fashion both the strong and the tender. Right? God does. Go to the next one for me. People talk all the time about um, the evolution of animals and how uh, certain animals got certain features over time. I guess it's survival of the fittest for the elements and things like that. I'm like, when I hear that conversation, I'm like, you have a designer who designed an animal to sustain itself in a setting. 
And I'm like, either he's got a really good sense of humor to give these birds those legs, or very intentional to create them in a way that they could thrive in a setting. And the intentionality to detail and design for every creature. It's just astounding to me. What about the sky? To tell us about who he is. Right now the sky reminds me of rest. You think about the sunrise and then the heat of the day and then the rest that comes with the dawn of the day and, and the, the patterns of wakening, working, and resting that God has set in motion and the rest that He designed for us and desires for us to operate in. Let's go to one more. I think we got one more. to tell us about who he is. Powerful. So according to Romans chapter 1, Paul says that we can look to creation to know the invisible attributes of God. We don't look to creation to say that is God, but when we look to creation, we find out things about God. He says that all men are without excuse when it comes to knowing God because these attributes are evident everywhere. And we look at what God has made and he says all men everywhere are without excuse because God has not only revealed himself in his word, but he has revealed himself in his creation so that every man everywhere is without excuse, Paul says. And we just look and we can be astounded. We can be amazed. Second thing that we find in the first ten words, and this is the, the last one I got for you. In the beginning... God. Now that may be oversimplifying what Moses wrote for us in Genesis 1.1, but in the English language, I believe that the word God is almost meaningless because it can mean so many things. When, when a word has so many meanings, it's almost meaningless to use. And I think the word God has become that in the English language. But when we go back to the Hebrew language that this was originally written in, anybody know what that first stretch you? Anybody know what Hebrew word was used in Genesis 1-1 for God? Hmm? Nope. There's multiple words that are used throughout the Bible that use the word God. This one is Elohim. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so don't think that I am, but there's a few words that are common when it comes to studying scriptures, and this is one of them. 
The word is Elohim. And when it's translated from Hebrew to English, we get the word God. Okay, so when the translators did that, here we have the word God. Um, is it singular or plural? In the beginning, God. You're a teacher? There is a trick. I'm asking you a trick question. Yes, it's translated into a singular, but the word itself is plural. Okay? So there's some places in the scriptures that the same root word, Elohim, is translated God's. You've got to look at context clues to figure out what the original intent was because it's a plural noun that's also used in a singular format, depending upon context. And in this context, there's one God, creator over everything. But the same word is also used in other places to say many gods that the nations fell into worshiping. Okay? So, God or gods, depending upon context and the surrounding words. God created is a proper translation, but it leaves room for a greater truth. In the beginning, God, Elohim, communicates the singularity and plurality of God. It leaves room for this mystery to be revealed to us. Okay? So the Bible's opening line, if I read that and I read it in the original, it would not just communicate to me that there's one God creator over everything. It would leave room to capture my imagination, to draw me into reading the rest of the book, to see, is this one or is this many? Is this one or is this many? Would he reveal more to me about himself that would help me understand who this God is? So it leaves room for there to be a greater mystery. And as we read the rest of the scriptures, even 26 verses later, Genesis 1, 26 it says, God said, let us make man in our own image. God said, singular, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, own image. So that once again, there's this, this mystery that's continually unfolding. And by the time we get to the New Testaments, the Gospel of John, John opens up his work, he opens up his written message, in the beginning was the Word. The Word, he's using that as a synonym for Jesus. Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. All things were created through him. So John opens up his writing in the same place that Moses opened up his writing, and he's revealing the greater mystery. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things are created through him. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed his glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace. No one has ever seen God and the one and only Son, who Himself is God, has revealed Him. There's this mystery that you're hooked into 
in the first verse, in the first statement. But he doesn't explain everything in the first sentence. There's this, as every literary work through all history, the Bible follows the same pattern. You're hooked, and then he reveals greater and greater depth through the rest of the writing. So when God revealed himself in the scriptures, in the beginning God created, but then he left room to reveal the greater truth. That God is not only Father, but he's been revealed in the Son and is available in the Spirit. So we have one God who takes on three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And you see the Spirit in verse 2. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. So we three, all three parts of the Godhead revealed in that first opening scene of the Scriptures. Yes, He's one, but He's three in one. I know that's hard for us to wrap our minds around at times. So let's review real quick various theories. Agnosticism. God exists, yet he is unknowable. According to what we talked about last week, he's made himself known through the scriptures. So we don't believe that to be true. We believe that God exists and is knowable. Deism. God is known by reason and nature. And God has created and then backed out of his creation, let it to be. But when I read John chapter 1, where God made himself known and came to us in the flesh, I cannot come to the conclusion that God has left his creation to operate based on natural law. He is still active. He is still pursuing. He is still engaged in his creation. So I cannot subscribe to that through a biblical viewpoint. Polytheism. There are many gods. Well, in the beginning, God in the singular created. Now he is made known in three persons, but he is still one singular God. So we can't subscribe to that from a biblical viewpoint as well. Pantheism. The universe is God. No, the universe reveals the invisible qualities of God, but it in itself is not God. Paul rebukes that in Romans 1 when he says, Some men have begun to worship the creation instead of the creator. And he declares that to be an error. So according to a biblical viewpoint, we can't subscribe to that. And atheism says there is no God, but the opening statement of the scripture says there is, and that he has created all things, which leads us with one theory, which is a biblical viewpoint. There's one God, creator over all. So our belief statement for this week is this. We believe, told you I'd try to give you one of these each week, there is, is one eternal God, creator of all things, 
existing in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. He is completely holy and full of grace. We believe that to be true based upon a biblical viewpoint. We believe there is one eternal God, creator of all things, existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He's completely holy. There's no one else like Him, apart from everything, perfect, unique. And He is full of grace. That grace has been made available through Jesus. If God were only holy, He could condemn us and be just in doing so. That we have rebelled against Him, we have pursued life apart from Him, we have created our own laws despite Him, we've worshipped creation and false gods instead of Him. He would be just in His holiness to abandon and rebuke and correct and discipline us for all eternity. But it says, God in the flesh, through the person of Jesus, came full of grace and truth, that He might, like we said last week, show us what's wrong, teach us what's right, correct our path, and direct us in what is good. He's forgiven us. He's given us the favor of His Son, we deserving death, Jesus took our death, died in our place so that we might live. There are a variety of theories about God in this world. But the scriptural viewpoint is pretty clear. It doesn't leave much room for other theories. Um, here's what's interesting. Number one, we have proven to be a church where people can come in and consider different viewpoints. Number two, the more involved I get in our city, the more I realize that those other theories that I had listed are very prevalent all around us right now. Okay. Now, when we operate as a church within itself and we're, we, we, we only do church things instead of city things, then we can begin to believe that our entire city adheres to our monotheistic view. But when we do city things instead of church things, I realize more and more on an increasingly basis that that's not accurate. And we're surrounded by people who have polytheistic, atheistic, agnostic, a variety of other theories all around us on a daily basis. And the more we're engaged in the city, the more we realize that to be a normal truth at this point. So for us as a people and as a church, having this belief statement with clarity and discussing it with humbly, I believe is key. I believe it is. Questions? Comments? Open the floor before we finish.